Hey, if you don't have a Bible, um, don't be shy. You can, you can walk over and grab one on the side uh, here um, or uh, open up on, if you've got one in, with you, open it up to Mark chapter 12. Uh, Mark chapter 12 on your screen or Bible in, in your hand, but Mark chapter 12 in the New Testament, the back third of, of Scripture. Um, it's the second book, Matthew, and then Mark. So Mark 12. Um, last week we started uh, this series, and it's intentionally... Um, broad and big. We've called it the story, uh, a year of, of rediscovering Jesus. Uh, we hope and pray and believe that people will discover Jesus for the first time. And maybe you're here and you're like, I, I don't quite know what I believe about Jesus. And just glad that you're here. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about Jesus and, and we find him in, in scripture and in our lives. But uh, some of us will find Jesus for the first time. Uh, we also believe as a church family, this is a year of, of rediscovering Jesus. Um, we've called it the story. And what that means is that in the Bible, in scripture, what we see is not just a lot of different letters and books in, in this one book, this collection, but there's a cohesive, coherent story, a grand story that is about God revealing himself in the person of Jesus. And so everything in scripture points to, to Jesus. And so as we go through this year, we've just simply called it the story. We have part of this year mapped out, but not all of it. And that's because we find ourselves in a unique year that we're trusting God will be a transformative year for us. And so if you were with us last week, uh, we started in a book that is commonly avoided, and that's the book of Leviticus. Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the New Testament, Leviticus. If you've ever tried, you know, maybe something uh, happened in you in a particular year or in, in December, and you felt just sparked or motivated or, or something new is happening in your life, and you're like, God, God wants me to read scripture, which he does, but you started in, in January one year, and you started a Bible reading plan, and you got to Leviticus, and you're like, well, that's all. God stopped calling me to read scripture. That's, you know, that's because these are written long ago, and we want to be a church that is looking at all of scripture and taking it in and learning from it and finding God in all of it, including the books of the Old Testament and the New Testament that we might want to avoid. But as we looked at chapter 25 of Leviticus last, uh, last week, we, we looked at this idea of a jubilee year. Uh, a year where, and again, without getting all the way back into it, you can go listen to the podcast, but it's a, a unique year in the life of the people of Israel where God did a new work, and it came through trusting him. And so we want that for ourselves as a church family this year. One of the things that it being a unique year for us is that we want to call ourselves back to, to discovering and rediscovering Jesus. And so part of that, we know, is that we understand what it means to love Jesus. And I want to look at a at three different texts in the book of Mark where Jesus is calling us to do just that. And so if you found your way to Mark chapter 12, we'll start there and bounce around a little bit, but if you hang in Mark, you'll, you'll be good. Um, we're gonna go a couple other places, but it, it, three different texts in, in the book of Mark uh, this morning. And, and uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 28 says this. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. And, and who they heard debating was that uh, Jesus was debating with these group of people called the Sadducees. And they're just a, uh, a trained, educated group of people in Israel in the first century that have particular belief systems. But they kind of were this uh, kind of elite, uh, uh, above the rest of the crowd, had influence and, and influence and power and authority and that kind of thing because of their training. And they were viewed as religious leaders and of, and of the law. And so another teacher of the law notices that happening between Jesus and the Sadducees. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. No surprise, he's Jesus. Good answer. He asks him, so this teacher of the law asks Jesus, of all the commandments, 
which is the most important? Of all the commandments, which is the most important? And just so, just so we feel what's going on here, um, we've all been in this kind of conversation before. Okay, for us, you know, for many of us, we've only done this on social media, um, but we probably also, you know, many of us have done it in, in conversation as well. We learn some, about something new, or maybe it's our field of expertise, it's your, it's your focus in education and training or your degree, and you feel like, I, I know this, and so when other people have the same, we kind of we want to compete or compare a little bit. On social media, it's much more of just, just fighting and, and showing how smart we are and, uh, and doing that kind of, but we all know what it's like to try to one-up one another in a conversation to go, okay, I know the most about this of this particular thing. That's what this teacher of the law is doing. He's coming to Jesus and going, okay, I'm watching this from afar, and Jesus is, is, is hanging with the Sadducees. They usually win these kind of conversations. But this new guy, Jesus, has given a really good answer. He's kind of stumped them. And so I'm going to step into the conversation, and I'm going to try to stump Jesus, because then I'll kind of be above in, in here. So he asked them this kind of tricky question of all of the commandments, so of all of Scripture, of all of the Old Testament, of all, let's say, the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, what's the most important commandment? You know, he kind of probably does this or maybe does this and kind of leans back and waits for his answer and sees if he's going to kind of win and, and be head and shoulders above everybody else in this conversation. He, he doesn't really know all of who Jesus is yet, and um, I, without spoiling it too much, he doesn't he doesn't win. So here's Jesus' response. The most important one, the most important commandment, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love the Lord and, and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then he throws in a second one. That's the most important, but here's a second one. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. For some of us, that might be familiar. Um, for others of us, if, if you've not heard that before, Jesus says, here's the answer. And, and again, Jesus understands exactly what's going on in this conversation. That as they debate in public and as other people listen in, they're vying for influence. They're vying for who's going to be trusted. They're vying for who's going, to, who's going to say, I trust you as a rabbi, as a teacher, and I'll follow you. And so Jesus is aware of what's going on here. And he gets asked this kind of trick question. What's the most important one? What is it? And he provides an answer. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And in case there's any wondering, we've said this before here, is that Jesus intentionally doesn't leave anything out. He's like, think of, a, think of a part of who you are that's not covered in that, and there's not. He, he, he encompasses everything. And, and what Jesus does in, in providing that answer is he looks at, at all of Scripture that they would have studied, that the teacher of the law that said, they all would have studied and known, and they would have had much of it, if not all of it, memorized, which is, just blows my mind. But Jesus knows they're so intimately familiar with all of the Scriptures, with all of the law. And he takes all that, and he pulls the thread that runs through all of it, and he says, this is it. This is what it's all about. The essence of everything is that you love God with all of who you are. That's what the law is about. Everything throughout all of this story, all of this book, all of the scriptures, even the parts that we can't connect with, that we don't seem to understand, that if we were to do a Bible reading plan in the beginning of the year, that we might feel bogged down in it. This is so foreign and bizarre and out of date. What's underneath all that, what runs through all that, the reason for all of that is that God 
wants you to love him with all of who you are. And here's what this reveals. Here's what this exposes. Here's what this tells us. That God is telling us what he wants. That the God of the universe is telling me and you what he wants. Not what he needs, okay? There was a time when he existed and, and we didn't. And we're going to start our reading plan in, in February uh, in, a, in a couple weeks here. It's going to be available in the next week or two. But as we start, we're going to start in Genesis. And there's a time when God decided to create us, that we didn't exist, that he wasn't. We, he doesn't need us. But out of his own will, his own desire, he created us because he wants us to love him in return. That's what he wants. He wants to, to be with us in relationship. That's what, this, that's what this answer reveals. Says, Jesus says the essence of the whole entire law, the reason we have all these scriptures is because the God of the universe is saying, I love you and I want you to love me with all of who you are. And so I'm gonna list out all, all of who you are. There's no part I leave unturned. And in including, I start with your heart, the, 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 the very core of who you are, your heart, not your actual muscle, like not the thing that pumps blood, but, but the core of who you are. And then, and then your soul, in case you're wondering if, that, if part of there's uncovered there or not covered in that list of things, but the soul, the, 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 you, your essence, who you are, and your mind, not your brain, not the physical organ of the brain, but, but your consciousness and your thinking, and I want that too. And then I, then I want your strength, your, your physical body, your strength, your behavior, everything you do with your body. I want that too. And he goes, and I got a second commandment. So now that I've got you covered, everything, all parts of you, the second one is this, how you treat the rest of humanity, the way you treat everybody else, everything else outside of you. I want that covered too. I want all of you. That God says, I created you so that you can know that I love you and I want your love in return, all of who you are. And again, if you're just getting introduced to him, Jesus is pretty smart that way. Did he... He kind of, microphones weren't invented till way later, but this is kind of like a mic drop a little bit. Like there's nothing can get, nothing's going to get above this. But he doesn't just drop it and walk away. He, he, he says, I'm giving you this answer because I, I want you to follow me and know me and I want you to love me. And when you don't, I, I'm going to be there to tell you something's wrong. There's a warning signal going off. You don't need to turn there. I just want to read this to you. In, it's from, from Jesus, and it's in red, which is really helpful in my Bible, but it's the words of Jesus. But it's, it's, it's from Jesus after he's ascended into heaven, and he's talking to John. And John's isolated on this island. He's exiled. And he writes this book. It's the last one in Scripture. It's Revelation. And what he writes is these messages from Jesus to these different people that Jesus loves, to different churches. And Jesus says this to the first church. It's the church in Ephesus, which has been a great church. And Jesus has a word of warning to them. And he says this in Revelation 2, verses 2, 3, and 4. Jesus, talking to John, who's writing his words to the church in Ephesus. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. Not that you don't love them, but you don't, you don't tolerate their behavior, their acts. You hate what's evil. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. He just, he just says, here's who you are. 
Church in Ephesus, Paul helped found it. Paul led it for a number of years, handed it off to somebody else. Like they're known, they're in this significant, critical city of Ephesus, and they've been influential. They've been a great church. And they list off all these things that they've done that have been great. And then he says this. And he says, the very next verse starts with the word yet, which has that ever been wonderful news in a conversation. Let me tell you all the things that, that you're really good at. Let me tell you all the things I like about you. Let me all tell me all, I'll just, I'll, I'm going to list off the, the areas of, of you that get an A. Here's your grades. Here's your grades. I get, you know, an A in this class, this class, this class, this class. Great. Yet. These are all A's yet. I like all these things about you. These are all good, but. You go, okay, this isn't going to be a good thing that comes next. And it's not. It says this. Yet, I hold this against you. This is Jesus talking to his bride. This is Jesus talking to his church. I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You have forsaken the love you had at first. He's talking to a church. He's not talking to an individual. In order to be a church, in order to be a church, you have to, you have to know Jesus. So that, that's where it started. It started with a love for Jesus and, and some individuals had a love for Jesus. They met Jesus and then they formed a community and then they grew into a church. And, and, and so that's their, their first love. If, you, if you're, you're hearing that this isn't personal to you if you don't know Jesus, then you don't have that first love yet. This, this isn't written to you yet. He says, you, you've forsaken the love you had at first. Um, we know what it's like to, to lose something. Um, we know what it's like to, um, or maybe, maybe not we don't, but we know what it's like to have friends who lose things repeatedly. That, that we all have somebody in our life, or maybe we've, we've created an offspring that this is true of, that they don't, they just, it's impossible for them to find, say, their shoes. Um, where are my shoes? Um, if that doesn't connect with you because you don't have children yet, if you do, this will happen to you. Um, but we all have a friend who, who loses their, what, credit card every time you go out to eat, who loses their phone every time they get out of your car, who loses, I mean, they lose something. We know what it's like to lose. And here's the thing, is, as, as, as frustrating and as, as disappointing as that might be, we have, we have grace for that, right? Oh, that's just a, an ability you haven't developed yet. It's, you know, whatever it might be, it's like you're, it's, you're special in that way, and that's, that's great. But we don't hold that against them. We understand that that's unintentional. It's accidental. I, I just lost it. I don't know where my shoes are, my wallet is, my, my phone. I just, it's gone. Okay, well, let's, let's backtrack your, your steps. Like, um, wow, we could go down that for a long time. But um, <laughs> it's very different to lose something than it is to leave something. To, to leave something. We, it's very different. We've all left things, and not left behind, but to leave. Like we've, we've left relationships. We've left friendships. Maybe we haven't left them entirely, but we've left a certain level of intimacy of them. We've just said, I'm not, I'm not going to go there. I can't go there again. I've been hurt. I've been disappointed. It's too scary. It's too vulnerable. I'm, I'm not going to go to that depth. I've left that depth of relationship, or I've left that person completely. And maybe we've done it really clearly, and we've written a letter, an email, or had a hard conversation. Maybe we've done it passively, where it's just kind of devolved over time, and it's, it's just gone. 
There's a big difference than intentionally leaving something versus having lost it. Jesus is truthfully and graciously, but truthfully telling his bride, this isn't something that you've lost. You've left me. And maybe it's not completely, but maybe it's a level of intimacy that's been avoided or undeveloped or gone dormant intentionally. Could be passively, but allowed it to happen. And that's what, that's what Jesus is addressing. And he's comparing, he's got his list of things that says you, A plus, A plus, A plus, A plus, yet. And the reason he lists them all out is because he, he wants it intentionally to be in contrast. You've left your love. I, I, I really don't care about all the things that you've done well. And the reason I don't care about it is because the thing I care about once, the thing that is the essence of the entire law, the thing that is the most important commandment is that I have your heart. I want your heart. That's the God of the universe is telling me that he wants my heart. Gosh, I can think of a lot of other things I'd rather deliver first. And you can too. And we can collectively as a church. And yet the God of the universe is saying, I, I, I want you. And I want you to want me. I want your heart. That, that part of you that no one else knows when they have it and when they don't, unless you tell them. The part of you that is at the inner core of who you are, that you get to decide, that you get to guard, that you get to share. God says, I want that. All the perseverance and all the hard work and all the good deeds are, gosh, they're secondary. I don't care about that top part of the list. Yet, do not forsake me. I want your heart. Don't intentionally walk away from me. Stay with me. And so what we have is the image, the, the history, the news report of a church that is hitting it out of the park in so many other areas. And God just says, no, this is, this is what I want. And so you and I need to hear that first and foremost as followers of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the good news, that God loves you before you do anything for him. That God loves you. That, that there is this there's this lie from Satan that's not true, that's false, that is, that is uniquely and deviously intertwined with our humanity. And the lie is this, that we can do something for God that will cause him to love me more. It's not, it's not true. God doesn't work that way. That's not how he is. That's not how our best relationships are. Most of our human relationships are like that. And that's why it's so deviously interwoven into our humanity is because we can do things for other people and somehow they like us or give us more of what we want. And God says, that's not how I work. I love you simply because I created you and decided to love you. And so you can't do or offer me anything that's gonna make me love you more. Mark chapter seven, Jesus says this. And this is, he's, he's just got done debating some other religious leaders. These are called Pharisees. They're different than Sadducees. And, and the difference isn't particularly important right now, but it's another group of teachers of the law. He's, they've just asked him another trick question. He replies with this. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. And then he labels them. He labels them. Jesus labels them. About you, hypocrites. You, you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their, or what? Their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. What does he care about? 
the location of their hearts. He cares about the location. Their hearts are far from me. I care about where their hearts are. I care about where your heart is. I want it close to me. <laughs> That's why I wrote all, all of this. That's why I revealed this whole entire story. That's why I sent my son. That's why Jesus is here. That's why Jesus is saying and trumping these, these teachers of the law who are trying to trick him and one-up him. He says, no, it's about your heart, guys. It's not about your intelligence. It's not about your ability. It's not about your degree. It's not about what you've accomplished. It's not about your perseverance, your good deeds. Your any, it's not about any of that. Stop. Your hearts are far from me. It's the reason why hearing the concept, the idea, and the experience of a jubilee year is so foreign to us because we're so used to performing and earning. And God says, no, just stop. Don't plant anything. Don't harvest anything. Just rest and know me and love me and receive my love. We've got lies that are intertwined with our humanity that are hard, that make it hard to hear that and to experience it. This gets read at weddings, not this particular verse, but the ones following it gets read at weddings quite often. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's known as the love passage. It's, it's the default one when wedding planning starts, and it's a really good one to be a default one. It's a great text. This part doesn't get read all that often, but sometimes it does. But it says this is this describing love at the very beginning. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And in case that's not clear and you like gongs and cymbals, there's supposed to be bad things here. <laughs> if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, it's an impressive thing. All these different languages speak angelic. That should be an impressive thing. No, no, it's, it's like nothing. It's, it's bad noise. If I have the gift of prophecy, oh, I'd like that. And can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, I'd like that. And if I have a faith that can move mountains, whoa, that's a good thing. But do not have love, I am nothing. I've missed the reason I was created for. If, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. It's about the condition of our hearts and its distance from God. Does God have our hearts? Are we responding to him in love? Or are we trying to do a whole lot of other things that could impress ourselves, others, and him? God says, no, just, just stop. There's a beautiful picture in Mark of what this looks like when it happens to us, to an individual. And let me read it to you. Mark chapter 14, verse 3. While he, which is Jesus, while Jesus was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, which is pretty fantastic that Jesus would be in the home of a leper. Usually they're excluded, and you know, we don't know what his home is like, but usually they're in the leper colony, but he's got his own home, or maybe he is in the leper colony, and he's letting Jesus use his home, but people just avoided that, I mean, like the plague, which is obvious, but like, don't be near that home. And there's both physical and then spiritual beliefs they had about leprosy, and they would avoid it, and Jesus goes right to that guy's home. A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, which if we had more time, we'd go into nard, but we don't have time. So she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. This expensive perfume. She broke it and poured it on Jesus' head. Some of those present 
We're saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor and they rebuked her harshly. I, I don't know what that party looked like. I don't, we, we don't have any more detail to it than that. But Jesus is in this home and nobody used to go to the, the home of Simon the leper, but when Jesus went there, then all of a sudden everybody wanted in and there was a party in this home and, and Jesus said, we don't know exactly what Jesus was doing. If he was talking, if he was eating, it was mealtime. If they just, maybe they just had appetizers and drinks. We don't know. Maybe he was watching and sitting and, and doing something. I, we, we don't know what he was doing, but this woman is in there and she's got this expensive jar of perfume and she breaks it open and she pours it on his head. And maybe he knew it was coming and maybe he didn't. And maybe she said, can I pour this? And maybe she just reached over kind of through the crowd. Nobody was looking and dumped it on his head. We, we don't know exactly what the scene looked like. But as soon as it happened, the rest of the room responded to her and criticized her for pouring out something expensive onto Jesus. And they said, don't waste it. Don't waste it on Jesus. And what's, what's difficult to read this and I hope you do this. I hope when you read scripture, you read yourself into it. Where would I fit in in this? I would have been one of those. I would have been calculating it. I would have been like, that's great perfume and glad that you invested a year's worth of wages in it, woman, and that you want to put it on Jesus because that's great because Jesus is awesome. But I, could you do like a quarter of it? Or like maybe, maybe a half. But we get the point. You can, you can keep it. You can sell the rest back. Like we could use the money for something. I, I would have been one of those. And so I need to hear these words from Jesus when he responds to the indignant people in the room that are saying, save your money. Be a little more planned and thoughtful. His response is this. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. Did you catch that? She's done a beautiful thing to me. In the middle of this party where everybody's hanging out and having fun and doing whatever we're doing at a Jesus party, she, she walks up and she dumps a year's worth of salary onto Jesus. And he calls it a beautiful thing. And I think I might have been one in the room saying, why this waste of perfume? Jesus goes on, the poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. You've got two completely different motivated people. One is motivated to say, I don't care what it costs. There's Jesus, and this is what I've done, and I'm going to pour it out on him, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to count the dollars or see the, the change floating through the broken veil. I'm just going to, I'm going to drop it all on him. And then you've got Judas is like, this is not what I want. This should go a different way. I've got a better idea. We can use our funds for this and this, and if I, if I out Jesus, maybe he'll show up in power. Jesus goes a completely different direction. Jesus is calling to me and to you and says, I want your hearts. And what I want is I want you to waste your entire heart on me before and above anything else. I want, I want all of you for me, all of it. 
I don't want you to, to calculate it out. I don't want you to divide it up. I don't want you to, to hold part of it back. I, I want all of it. I read a story about a pastor who just a couple years ago um, went to China, uh, and got off the plane and went to a designated building that they had rented in, in secrecy because you can't go to China and teach about Jesus and scripture and train people to tell others about Jesus and scripture. And so it was a hidden location. And there were 20 house church leaders house church leaders from some distant province that spent 13 hours on a train ride getting to this location. And once they got off the train, they came by ones and twos into the undisclosed location so that nobody would suspect anything was going on in there. And they were farmers and housewives and cooks and common people, 20 of them. They came in and sat on the floor because that's all they had. They didn't have chairs. Had 16 Bibles and handed them out, so not even a Bible for everyone. And the, the teacher who was going to begin started to get to know them and said, hey, I want to hear a little bit about your stories. What, you know, where have you been? How is God working? And as, he, as they went around quickly and, and told their story, I realized that 18 out of the 20 of them had done a three-year stint in jail for being identified as followers of Jesus. And one of them had done five of those. And in my math, that's 15 years. He heard their stories of their sacrifice for Jesus and he also said when we worshiped, and one of them, I noticed when they raised their hand, I could see scars from the shackles that had been around their, their wrists. And at one point in the three-day training that they were able to do there, he said, said, let's all stand and read this particular scripture together. And as they stood to, to read, he, he looked over, and one of the women who, who had the Bible and was sharing it with a man looked down at the text and, and then gave it to the, to the man next to her and, and let go of it. And, he circled around afterwards and said, when we stood and read scripture, why didn't, why didn't you hang onto a Bible? Why did you give it to someone else? And, and she just simply said, well, I, have, I had that text memorized. And he said, oh. And then she said, I have a lot more memorized as well. How, how did you memorize that when, when Bibles are so rare? And, and she said, well, when I was put in jail, um, a friend brought a Bible and they confiscated it and took it. And then Another friend knew that they had stolen it, so they started sneaking in little scraps of paper where they had written scripture on it. And so I would take the scrap of paper and I would read it really quickly and memorize it as fast as I could because I knew as soon as they discovered the paper, they would take that as well. And so I memorized scripture quickly because what I realized is that if I memorized it, I had it. And while they could take the Bibles and they could take the scraps of paper, they can't, can't take what's in my heart. And so I've memorized it and it's, it's in my heart and it's shaped my heart. And so I don't care if I go back to another three-year stint. And I'll ride on a train for 13 hours to come and learn more about who God is and who he says he is through scripture because I want, I want that on my heart because I want to be completely and utterly surrendered. All of who I am, my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, and the way that I treat others, all of it I want to be shaped by God and for him. It's a scary thing to, to know that the God of the universe is calling for me and for you to, to be utterly surrendered of all of who we are. As I think back to my own life of when those moments have happened, and it's happened here and there over the course of my entire life since I came to know Jesus as a, as a fairly young child. But perhaps one of the most significant ones is when I was in a room, and it was carpeted, it wasn't hardwood floor, but we were on the, on the floor, and I was listening to others, and they were peers. And it was when I was 18 years old, getting ready to graduate from high school, invited into a Bible study with a few other friends that I'd gone to high school with. And the seven of us would meet in this one of, his, one of their bedrooms, and we would meet on Tuesday nights, and 
try to read scripture and pray together. And what I realize is for the first time in my life, I'm, I'm seeing a peer that's just like me, my same age, struggling with the same things, changed and shaped by Jesus. That my friends loved Jesus and I wanted that as well. And so what I realized is I, I gotta open up more of, of my heart and my life for Jesus to begin to shape. And I started off on this journey that started with Jesus. I wanna be completely surrendered to you. And so I said, God, you can have my whole life all of who I am is, is yours. You tell me where to go, and I'll do it. You tell me who to be, and I'll be it. Except for a, a, a missionary, a church planter, or a pastor. That was my guardrail. But God, you've got all of me right here. And that lasted a good two years. And then I kind of unwisely signed up for a conference that I didn't really think through completely and showed up and had no idea what it was about and went through it for the week. And at the end of the week, at a time of communion, standing before God, realizing that he says, I want your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and how you interact with all of humanity for the rest of your life. I want all of it. And I was at that point of, I don't, I don't, I really like my guardrails. And I could continue to hold on to that or I could go, okay. You've got all of me. It's, it's all on the table. And I'm scared. Because I think if you're asking me for, for all of me, you're probably going to stick me on one of those three things I said I'm not available for. And for those of you that have walked a journey similar, you know that that usually happens. That he pulls us into the very thing that we're frightful of. And then he gives you the strength and the courage to step into it. But God's saying, I, I want all of you. As we move forward into this next season, both as individuals and as a church, God's calling us to do that. To not worry about the perseverance and the good deeds and all the things that look so good on a report card, but to say, no, I want your heart that nobody else can see or know about, but that hidden part of you, I want that part of you. It's one of the reasons we're calling ourselves back to Scripture in a new way. If you're already on a reading plan for this, you're fantastic. But to get into Scripture on a regular basis because it's there that Jesus meets us. It's a reason that we've planned additional worship times just to come in together in a different kind of environment to say, God, we want to waste our time with you, trusting that you're going to show up and do something new. We need to continue to learn about rest, and we'll step into that next week. But that we want to be kind of people in the kind of church that says, God, you've got all. There's no part hidden. I want to love you with all of who I am. I want to surrender all of who I am, knowing that you're going to work in me and guide me and heal me and shape me and empower me and love me in return. I want to invite you to do this. Would you close your eyes with me? I want to read a, a prayer. That yes, it's in scripture, so it's written by God, so it's by somebody who knows us, but it was literally written by the pen of somebody who lived a very long time ago and doesn't know us personally, but these words are so needed and appropriate just for who we are in this season. And so I'm going to read these, and then we're going to sing and come to this, the tables, the communion tables. Listen to these words in Ephesians chapter 3. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, in your heart. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God.